Before we begin, just a, a reminder, if you can, um, to go buy Service Dog before you go home tonight and take a little picture of that funky thing on it and make sure you sign up for something, uh, especially as we get into June. We're going to need more volunteers as we move into First Christian, June 6th, so please do that. Well, we've been taking kind of a slow walk through the first ecumenical council of the church, the first great council of the church that took place in Jerusalem, probably around 46 AD, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And kind of our backdrop for this has been John 17, Jesus on the last night of his life prays, and he prays that his church, you and I, would be one as he and the Father are one, so that the world would believe that God sent him. So the idea is that the unity of the church is related to the mission of the church. The unity of the church is related to the witness of the church. And the early church took that very, very seriously. And for about 10 years, maybe, it went well when the church stayed around Jerusalem. But then, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, what we've seen is that uh, people started to leave Jerusalem. They started to share the gospel with non-Jewish people, what the Bible calls Gentiles. They started to come into the church, and a lot of tension was created. And the tension was over, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? The people that had been Jewish all their life felt that you should keep the law of Moses. The Gentiles uh, disagreed. And so we, we come into uh, the first great doctrinal council of the church. Now, the way that the early church worked through doctrinal differences was by calling what we call now ecumenical councils, where as many leaders as possible from all over Christendom could come, pray, talk, and try to discern what God's word said on these issues. And actually, there, there were seven major ecumenical councils uh, after this first one. The Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, the Third Council of Constantinople in 680, and the Second Council of Nicaea in 760. And each one had a particular doctrinal issue that they were gathered to uh, kind of work through. And, and again, because these councils are so important in the life of the church, we thought we'd take kind of a slow walk through this one. And this one is really about the very nature of the gospel itself, about whether or not you have to do certain things in addition to believing to become a Christian. And as we've seen the past few weeks, there was a, a, a lot of uh, debate. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And verse 7, after there had been much debate. And we don't know how long that went on, um, but we do know that in later church councils, sometimes the debate actually became physically violent. And I wanted to talk about that for a minute, because if you've ever um, read many of the criticisms of Christianity, this is one of them, that the, the church councils were actually not of God. 
they were uh, about power and politics, and so their decisions can't be trusted. Just wanted to take a minute to talk about it. Uh, in A.D. 325, about 300 bishops gathered together in a little resort community called Nicaea. It was Emperor Constantine's summer resort home. And Constantine had taken over and thought that he'd kind of won peace throughout all the land. And then what he realized was the churches were fighting. And the churches were threatening to split his empire. And so he calls uh, every bishop who can come, and he pays their way. And they all come to Nicaea for a 10-day conference. And uh, it's kind of interesting to study. He, he's on this lofty throne, dressed in purple. He presides over all the proceedings. And he begins with a lecture. He says he's surprised and disappointed at the church's disunity. And then, this is according to Eusebius, a church historian who was at the council, he exhorted them, quote, to discard the causes of disunion which have existed among you. And that very same day, they went out into the streets and started fighting over the nature of Christ in front of all the people in Nicaea. Historian Eusebius says, violent controversy arose at the very beginning. The majority of bishops affirmed uh, a certain view of Christ that Nicaea affirmed. Uh, a number did not, and it created a tremendous controversy. And so I just wanted to acknowledge this for a minute. What do we do with the historical reality that the great doctrines of our faith were arrived at through controversy and politics and messiness? What do we do with that? Because you know, of course, the doctrines that we believe and teach Jesus didn't put them on a PowerPoint and give them to the disciples. The church had to write down the traditions of Paul and Jesus and then talk about what they meant. And so thoughtful people have argued about this. One of the uh, arguments is, well, winners write history and oppress the losers. And so really, if you study the councils, there's nothing about God there. It was all power in politics. And so you can't trust the creeds. You can't even trust the Bible because there are other books that should have been there, but the, the powerful people didn't want them in there. And, and so we really can't trust any of it. That's kind of um, Christianity 101 in your normal secular university. That's what I study. So that's one approach. The second approach is sort of just ignores it and says, hey, you know, the Bible's easy to understand. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I don't want to hear about this. That's a little problematic, too. Here's how I think most Christians kind of work this through. Here's how I think about it. Jesus rose from the dead and actively guides his church today by the Spirit. And then as now he works with what he has. And there were messy people and politics involved in the councils. True. But Jesus works through flawed people and processes to guide his people to the truth. He did that then, and he continues to do it now. Now, I know I can't prove to you that that's true. But for me, and when I was doing graduate work in, uh, in history at the University of Tennessee, 
I remember reading quite a bit about these councils, and there are that is messy stuff. There was a lot of yucky stuff that went on, and after a while, it's kind of like being in the kitchen and seeing how it's made. And for a while, it really challenged my faith, and I had to go back to, do I believe in the resurrection? Yes. Do I believe that Christ is now guiding the church by the Spirit? Yes. Can I then believe that he works through controversy to clarify the gospel? Yes. Now, those are faith commitments based on the resurrection. Uh, but it's something that I think we have to think about. Well, let's go back to this uh, first ecumenical council in Jerusalem. And just to quickly review, the first followers are Jewish, the non-Jews called Gentiles, hear and believe. And then in 15.1, we hear this. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we call this today a doctrine of Jesus plus. You have to believe in Jesus plus do these things if you're going to be a follower of Christ. And Peter, who'd spent many or at least three years with Jesus vehemently disagreed. He'd not heard that gospel from Jesus. He had heard that if you repent and believe in the gospel, you will be saved. And so an enormous conflict breaks out. Well, they, they decide, you know, we're going to gather, and that's been one of our principles, principles that when there is theological conflict in the church, uh, that one of the first things that we need to do is gather to talk about it, that we don't kind of quit immediately. And, uh, and there may come a point where that has to happen, but you, you start with a gathering. They're warmly received at first, but then we read in verse 5, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary. It's a very strong word. This has to happen to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there's, there's not a lot of room here for negotiation. And of course, Peter and Paul and Barnabas aren't ready to negotiate their understanding of the gospel of grace either. So it looks like we are on the brink of the first church split, the first denominational breakaway. And so Jesus' prayer for unity looks like it's about to go unanswered. And, and let's just think about it a minute. This is what's so challenging about the people of God trying to preserve unity is we love Scripture. We believe in Scripture. We believe God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. We believe Scripture shows us how to live. We believe we can rightly understand Scripture. We also believe that if we drift into error, if we drift into wrong belief, we can destroy our faith. We can destroy our church. We can harm our souls and other souls. So this is high stakes stuff. So the Pharisees uh, were, were the, the most orthodox denomination in Judaism in the first century. Uh, their name means the separate ones or the strict ones. They were known as the, the people who took the Torah the most seriously. And so these are people who love God's word, and they feel like the apostles are heretics. Now, Peter has heard the gospel over and over again from Jesus. Paul studied under one of the great rabbis, met Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus, and started to understand the gospel of grace. They are deeply committed 
to the scriptures and to the teachings of Christ. And so you've got both camps who love God's word, but see the nature of the gospel differently. And it, it's really a difficult situation. Um, I, as I was studying this this week, I, I was reminded of my seminary experience, and I, I mentioned this a little bit last week. And I, I went to a, my, the first seminary I went to was just wonderful. It was just wonderful, godly people. It was right where Sandy and I needed to be at the time. It was really a, a good three years for us. And this seminary loved God's Word, just loved God's Word. I even had a professor that when he put his Bible on the lectern, he'd never put another book on top of the Bible, just because he respected the Bible so much. Uh, I learned so much about loving God's Word in, uh, in my seminary. But as I may have mentioned last week, there, there was kind of a, a shadow side to my seminary, and I didn't realize it till later. Uh, one professor, I just love this man, very gentle-spirited man, he literally had a mimeograph sheets of paper that had fill in the blanks, and we would fill in the blank of what the text meant, and then he would give us all the other views where all the other denominations were wrong, and then we'd have a test, and we would give the right answer and why everybody else was wrong. He was a very kind man. He wasn't a mean man. But the, the implication that I took away from that kind of approach to theology was, you know, the Bible is pretty straightforward. If you apply the right method, you'll get the answers, and the people that don't get the answers are wrong, and you need to be, stay away from them because they'll lead you into false teaching. And I looked up a quote from a seminary textbook that uh, we used in, in those days. Um, it said, if natural science is concerned with the facts and laws of nature, theology is concerned with the facts and the principles of the Bible. Do you see where that's going? Uh, we just treat the Bible like a, an engineering text. And if you apply the right methods, you'll get the right answers. And the people that don't uh, are wrong. Now, when I was in seminary, it was before the Internet. And, and it, this will sound kind of strange to you, but it was possible in your seminary years to so um, get lost in the little community of your seminary that you really had no idea what was going on in the rest of the family of God. And looking back, I remember having passionate debates about the most arcane subjects. Uh, one of them was a, a long argument over whether the pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib position on the rapture was the right one. And one young man said that he would have to take another year after finishing his master's to solve that problem because he could not stand in a pulpit unless he'd figured out where he stood on the trib. Now, you may not even be familiar with what all that rapture talk is. And that's kind of my point. It's not a primary doctrine. And yet we felt, I, mean, I honestly felt that if you did not believe in dispensational pre-trib, pre-millennialism, that you were likely deceived and possibly not a Christian. And I remember studying Reformed theology and thinking that Reformed theology was quite likely from Satan because it disagreed with dispensational theology. 
And I remember a year after getting out of seminary, uh, I was pastoring. I went to a conference, and I saw this man. He'd got a doctorate at a great dispensational seminary, and he had changed his mind and became a Presbyterian pastor with Reformed teaching. And this is embarrassing now, but I remember staying away from him at the conference because I thought he was a blasphemer. Now, I don't think the seminary approaches it that way today. Um, but I, I share that story with you just, just to say this. You we're asking this question. We're trying to solve this riddle. How do people who love God's word love each other at the same time? And if your answer is, well, we all agree on Scripture, and that's how we be unified. The problem with that is uh, it, it often leads to a lot of division, especially if you start parsing out what everything must mean. Well, let's look at what happens uh, after this. The situation is kind of deadlocked, and a split seems imminent. So Peter stood up, says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, what Peter's doing here, uh, have you ever been in a board meeting where the board made a decision a few years back, and now you're hashing it over all over again? Uh, that's what's happening here. Peter is saying, hey, guys, five years ago, you heard that I'd shared the gospel with Cornelius and a bunch of Gentiles, that they'd come to faith, that the Spirit fell on them like the Gentiles in Acts 2, like the Jews in Acts 2. You called me up to Jerusalem. You said, what is going on here? I told you about it. And you said, thumbs up. This is God's work. Why are you questioning it now? Well, I think there might be a principle here when we disagree theologically. And that is, go back to the time when you agreed. Go back to the time when you were all on the same page about who Jesus was and what he was doing. Go back to the basics. Go back to the gospel. Well, then the next thing that happens, when they'd heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God. Well, actually, that's at the end of chapter 11. And then Peter talks about how the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, too. Now, what is he doing there? He is saying, look at the fruit, guys. You're wondering whether this is a real work of the Spirit. Look at the fruit. These people are coming to Christ. They're filled with the Spirit. They're shaping their lives around the pattern of Christ. Jesus himself said there'll be false prophets, test their fruits. Peter's saying, look at the fruit. I think this is another very important principle when we disagree with someone theologically. Well, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's in our church. Or maybe somebody's pursuing something that you're wondering, is that really scriptural? Look at the fruit. Uh, early in, Knox, in my time in Knoxville, when I was still just 
starting to rethink my seminary education even just a little bit, I met a man um, who was a pretty prominent faith leader in town, and we had very different theological views. And again, I remember thinking, well, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but I kind of remember thinking this man is a false prophet, and I need to lead him to Christ. We have since become very good friends, and I've seen over the years that even though we don't agree on everything, the fruit of the Spirit is at work in his life and in his ministry. And, and I've had to realize this man is a fellow follower of Christ, even though we don't agree on everything. There's fruit. So I think one of the things you ask is, this teaching that this person has embraced, is it leading to, uh, to them being more like Christ, to their life looking more like Christ's life, to, to more love, to more joy? Or is this teaching leading to a kind of disintegration of their life? Is it resulting in a wake behind them of chaos and broken relationships? Look at the fruit. Last illustration, and we're almost done. Uh, when I came to Knoxville, those early days, God led me into a relationship with a black pastor. And the first time I, I went to some black worship services, I really struggled. Because in those days, I was just trained before anything else to look for false doctrine. And believe me, I still believe in false doctrine. But I was so quick to go into a service and kind of sit in the back and fold my arms... And I remember hearing a little bit of prosperity gospel and going, check. A little bit of liberation theology going, check. A little bit of too much emotion for my point going, check. And really struggling with whether or not I could embrace this brother in his ministry and whether our churches could partner. Over the years, I have seen in immeasurable ways the fruit of the Spirit in his church and other churches other black churches. And God has used those churches to challenge my theology and to shape my walk with Christ. I look at the fruit and unmistakably know these are people of God. Well, we wrap up. Peter corrects the Pharisees very, well, not so gently. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. Now, that sounds kind of obvious to us today, but it wasn't obvious yet they had not yet really clarified the, the gospel of grace. It wasn't until the book of Galatians that it really gets clear. And so this is a moment where tension and crisis and controversy leads to the clarity of the gospel. That, whether we like it or not, is often how God teaches his church what the scriptures mean and how they're to be applied through tension and dialogue and discussion. Now, before we go to the table, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. Just a couple things real quickly. We're exploring this great riddle. Uh, what do you do when a Christian who believes something that we don't agree with, uh, how do you still love them and stand for the truth at the same time? 
Remember Jesus' prayer for unity. Separate only as a last resort. Two, gather if at all possible to talk about it. Three, remember that the Spirit works through theological controversy in, his church, in the church to clarify the gospel. Four, remember that where we do agree, we've both seen Jesus at work and go back to the center of the mission. Five, look for fruit. And six, correct and allow ourselves to be corrected. We're going to go to the table now. If, if you've got a little one over in the other yard, maybe you could go ahead and go, go get them. And uh, let's just take a moment before we come to the table. Holy Spirit, meet us now as we come to the table tonight in this beautiful spring evening. Be with us as we take the bread and the wine. And if there's a relationship in our lives tonight, where we need to follow some of these principles where we've become estranged because we really haven't handled a doctrinal difference well. Would you just gently nudge and encourage us in that direction? And Lord, would we be the kind of church that would be like the church in Jerusalem that week? where we could honestly talk about how we understand Scripture, what the Spirit seems to be saying, where He seems to be at work, and that out of that, all of us could more clearly discern the gospel and your call for our lives. In your name.